I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... I don't think that I've ever been in an industry that is going through so much change as quickly as education is. And it's happening for two big reasons. One is COVID, but the other one, which I think is underappreciated, is the constant drumbeat of the devaluation of a college degree. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We're joined again by our old friend, Jonathan Aberman, today. We talk about a lot of things, per usual, but I'll tell you one thing we drilled down deeply on is, what is a college degree going to mean in the future? What is it worth? And how are colleges and universities, forget the Harvards and Princetons, or forget the community college that charges 10 grand a year, what are those schools in between gonna start to generate, be it certificates or other types of degrees, that are gonna be appropriate the, to the motivated young man or woman that wants to go to that school and get a good job and have lifetime earnings that matter to him or her and their family. It is an unanswerable question, but he and I drill down deeply on it. I think you'll find it very interesting. Here's our conversation. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Good to see you as always. Great to have you back again. So there's so much to talk about. We're not going to talk politics, even though it is Washington, D.C. It's going to be hard talk, for me. We're going to talk business, okay. investment, and even education. So let's start with education. I know in the past you and I have discussed the migration or the seemingly momentous migration from degrees to certificates. And I'm, I'm wondering if you're seeing, certainly certificates are being far more commonly issued from community colleges, two-year colleges. If you're seeing either from your current stat status at Marymount or in the in the uh, uh, in the community of higher education in general certificates being more common well the educational industry is going through a massive 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 change that's driven by two big factors. that's three massives by the way well that's it is, huge. It's massive it's been interesting I, I can't you know, look you and I are we're investors together and and I don't think that I've ever been in an industry that is going through so much change as quickly yeah. as education is. And it's happening for two big reasons. One is COVID, which has really challenged it. But the other one, which I think is underappreciated, is the constant drumbeat of the devaluation of a college degree. Yeah, uh, I was very struck recently to see a poll that I think a third, if not more, people polled don't think a college degree is necessary any longer. Wow. And I think there are a number of reasons for that. One is the uh, the trend against, frankly, intellectual development because, uh, frankly, if people are smarter, they challenge authority. Yeah. Uh, but the other one is, <laughs> honestly, but the other one is- Sheep. It, we went sheep. We, well, you do. If, if people don't have context, they're much easier to uh, manipulate. But the, the other thing is that uh, many jobs these days don't require um, the same type of education that- Basically, most universities are designed to pump out. What most universities are designed, frankly, is to prepare people to be part of the upper classes. That bluntly is what started places like Bologna and Cambridge and other great universities right. that uh, are followed. So what's happening is employers are saying, well, this is great. You know, uh, a liberal arts education is a very nice thing socially. I want people to be intelligent, but I really need people to turn up and be able to work. Yeah. And by the same token uh, – while employers are saying that, parents and students are saying, you know what, to spend eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year, which is I think what Ivies are up to now, yep. for an education or fifty or forty or twenty, 
I better get good value for money. Yeah. So the educational world is literally scrambling right now to try to figure out what to do about that. And there are a number of things that they're trying to do. The biggest one is they're trying to provide education in what I would call bite-sized bits. Yeah. Well, let me let me let me go there because um, my former colleague on the board of my alma mater, who was uh, big cheese at IBM, he was CTO of IBM. He used to say to us in board meetings, IBM wants to hire T-shaped employees. T meaning they had some broad exposure, critical thinking skills, whatever, labor, but then they had deep domain expertise in one area that IBM would would would, would care about. Mm. And what I'm seeing economically is they don't care about the T. They want I. So they're, they're, the now folks are saying, and even I think even students and families are saying, if I can get a certificate in real estate finance or get a certificate in you know, coding or sometimes that 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 I versus the T is the same kind of financial yield as the old days. Well, I think that's I think that that's what people believe. I think that what the reality is, is very different, which is it's not a choice between liberal arts education, which is steeped in the arts and understanding culture and also knowing how to read and write. Uh, and do that arithmetic stuff. Yeah, it's not a choice of that or vocational training. It's what is actually appropriate for the 21st century. And so you asked me about certificates. I can tell you that most universities are using certificates as a way to provide bluntly cut rate education, less demanding, shorter time period to get something bite size, as bite you size. said. Bite size, yeah. Um, and we at Marymount saw that and said, all right, well, let's let's give that a try. What we've actually found is that the real interest is in people who take one of our certificates, which, by the way, we've decided to do as shorter courses of study, but yeah. the same number of credit hours as a real, a real degree. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. So okay. what we do is the certificates, instead of it being 36 credits towards a master's, it's 12 credits. But what people are doing is they're dropping the certificates into the chassis of a master's degree. Ah. So that what we're seeing, and we're seeing the same thing with the undergraduate students. They're doing, uh, effectively, they're doing a, a major in something like- um, Economics. Economics, or, yeah. and they're doing a minor in cybersecurity. Right. Or they're doing a major in uh, some sort of art, and they're doing it. So the point is that what we're seeing is that people want contextual understanding, and then they want specialization. And when you look at what employers actually hire, not what they say they want, but what they actually hire. They hire people who have good soft skills, who can communicate. I mean, the old story about Amazon with the memos. They want people that are culturally savvy and have good work ethic, but that also have narrow expertise. And what's happening is the educational market, frankly, doesn't know what to do with this because it, it defeats the community college model, which is, well, do a couple years of community college, get an associate's degree, and then go to work because Companies are saying, eh, if I want an entry-level person, I don't really need a community college. Mm -hmm. And they're saying the four-year college is, well, I want students who actually know how to do something, and, and people are scrambling around. So bottom line is, I think that we are halfway through a massive shakeout in education. And, well, and that's certificates are a symptom of a, an outcome. A symptom, and also I would argue the profitability element of the symptom. I mean, I, I, I you and I have chatted in the past offline about – uh, my business school alma mater, and maybe you, you're seeing it in, in the degrees you've gotten at the at the higher level, above the the bachelor level, where they're just you use the term bite size. They're just bite sizing the living heck out of an MBA mm -hmm. for right. a lot of the top schools. So you're seeing these five day, two week, thirteen week, which is the old you know kind of uh, business executive thing, but even two or three day programs. 
and people are paying for them. And the obviously the profitability is outrageously high versus full time students in dorms and all that stuff. And I think I, I can't imagine a school sort of walking away from some of those profitable arenas. Well, number one, you talk about profitability. I think that we should come back to something that's really fundamental. You understand because you had a hand in it. And I, and I helped you and other friends. We made the commercial internet here yeah. in this town. We really did. The commercial internet really started. You're welcome, America. Well, we are. You're AOL. But my point is that the internet has destroyed the economics of so many industries. Correct. By basically, you, you take a few, num- a few people who provide high value add that can survive and everybody else gets commoditized. And when I mentioned COVID earlier, what COVID did is COVID accelerated showing students, you know what? You can be online. And the students that want to be online say, you know what, I'll be online. Well, online goes to the most efficient, lowest cost provider, Global Campus, University of Maryland, which is excellent for what they do, University yep. of Southern New Hampshire, so forth. Huge. That drives the profitability out of a lot of education for for uh, educational institutions that can't, particip- can, can't operate at scale. Yeah. So what happens now is universities like Marymount or a GW – or an American, um, or a union, you know, where you were associated, have this interesting challenge where they can't compete at scale, nor should they try. They're not a public university, so what are they? Harvard and Wharton and Stanford and MIT, they can slice and dice because basically people want their brand associated with their careers. It's the people in the middle that are really scrambling right now to find out what it is that they can do to make themselves special. And if you know, because you were in the middle of it, and you and I are still invested in the middle of it as industries change, this is exactly what happens when industries get commoditized yep. by the internet. Yeah. And there's some huge winners, and there are a lot of losers. So I, it's funny, uh, not that I'm this bored, but I watched a video of a speech I gave at the Kogod School of Business at American University in 2000, so 23 years ago. Oh, my gosh. And I said, uh, by the way, if you track, if you if you map out the trajectory of what's happening in consumer e-commerce. Soon there'll be one giant store with a warehouse in Kansas that sells everything at the lowest price. I predicted Amazon. Well, either that or you're Marty McFly. Yeah, and right. you have a DeLorean right. and you went isn't, back in time. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So, uh, and because I, cause look, it wasn't that I was the brightest bulb in the sign, but the idea of, if you did track the vector of, uh, of 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 e-commerce for consumers was all price driven, no loyalty. They were just chasing price, 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 price for fungible goods. But even for non-fungible goods, the things that we, you know, a toaster versus a toaster, not all toasters are the same. But we're so price driven in the consumer arena. Amazon has built a you know trillion dollar business out of that. Listen, not to be too meta, but when uh, Marx back in the uh, middle eighteen hundreds started to talk with Engels, started you mean to talk Carl? about yeah, that, as opposed that to Groucho, guy, you know, okay. well, I want to be in a country club and not a member of, but yeah. you know, he he was a social commentator as as well as the you know the, the rationale for a lot of revolution. But yeah. one of the things he pointed out was that as capitalism develops and becomes more efficient, the it, it commoditizes. Yeah. And his argument was if everything's commoditized, it'll all be free and everybody can get what they want. Right. It hasn't quite happened yet. But capitalism by its nature, and you know, when you and I were together last month, we talked about how regulated should capitalism be or not regulated. We we're talking about banking. Capitalism at its ultimate outcome is always going to seek efficiency. Mm-hmm. So education is sadly an economic activity, yeah, and or not sadly. So we now have this this tension because people need to be educated because they need to work. And by the way, we haven't talked about Chat GPT, but the more technology mimics humans, the better we're going to have to be, and the more educated we're going to have to be. Um, 
the educational system right now has not figured out how to adjust. Well, I told someone the other day, uh, I play tennis occasionally. I'm not very good at it. But, you know, they say about tennis is the place you don't want to be is in the middle of the court, right, on that right. on that line. At the net or in the back, right? So, so to your point on barbells um, or or the small to, to large, it's a long it, tail in, in between, is impo- it's an impossible place to be. It's very hard to be. Yeah. It's and very hard to you be. You have to carve out brands, and this is where I think um, I would argue with this. The they're, they're bad branders. Most colleges and universities are bad branders. They sort of rely on their brand loyalty and brand identification from all of its past behavior, but they can't really make the case as to why they're worth $82,000 a year versus somebody else that's twenty five. But you just identified the biggest problem with most people in, in corporate America, which is they confuse brand with value proposition. Yeah. Brand is meaningless. Brand is just a shorthanded way to describe why people should care about you. So value proposition, you know, my college, why is it value proposition? Because business and technology design in one place, some people can say that's my value proposition. Harvard's value proposition is if you get in, you're made. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's just, but what's the although, value proposition? Although the lifetime earning differential between Harvard and not Harvard. It's, it's, it's shrinking. It's shrinking and it's and it's compressing. Yeah. If but I it's may. it's still its brand. It's still, well, that, that, then you, exactly. You right. were branded for life as somebody that p- passed that test. Right. So I'm not sure you saw this, but the. Yale University just announced the percentage of its applicants that it accepted. Did you, have you, have you seen no, this number? No. 4.3. 4.3 of applicants so, to Yale so were accepted. The, who's the point three person? I mean, uh, well, exactly. I mean, well, well, but no, I think the just to just to stay in education for a little bit, and we got to change topics here. Yeah. The the uh, upcoming decision by the Supreme Court oh, yeah, about how action. you can choose your candidates mm-hmm. and whether. You know, as some assert that colleges have, universities have bent over backwards for certain types of candidates, yep. relaxed some of the the category, some of the category needs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it'll be interesting, and I, I'm not sure they'll ever break it out. Is for Yale University to say what percentage of the 4.3 are African American, Asian, women versus men, Caucasian, whatever? It's probably an amazing set of stats, mm-hmm. a set of stats that post uh, post uh, Supreme Court decision may change pretty dramatically. Yeah. Well, so I, did we, you get? Re- I got rejected from Yale a couple of times. I was did waitless. You? I was waitless. Well, you're better than I Thank you for asking. The chasing, sons of bitches chasing a brand in yeah. particular. Well, I, mean, you I, I wanted to wear a jacket with with uh, you know with the uh, patches, the arms, with the leather patches. patches. Exactly. That's it's, their it's, brand. Listen, it's what's working in Washington. We're going to take a break, and we're here with Jonathan Aberman. He's the dean of the business school at Marymount University, the School of Business, Innovation, Leadership, and Technology. We'll have more conversation about things other than education after this. We want to put out a huge thank you to our listeners who put us in touch with some of the best voices in Washington, D.C. and the region. We've been hearing from you through Twitter, LinkedIn, and other direct messaging. If you know someone we should be talking to on our show, let us know. And thanks to all of those who stay in touch with us. So we were talking about education in general, but I think there's a sort of a weird sliver of education or reward for innovation, the old marketplace of incubators and accelerators. And let's go back in time. Let's let's put on our our, our, our time. You, what was the uh, what was the oh yeah Marty McFly right? Yeah, let's right. go back okay. in time. You know, back in the day, sort of ninety eight. Back in the day, ninety eight. Ninety eight yeah. to sort of oh four. Mm-hmm. Incubators, accelerators, they were everywhere. Yeah. They had different economic models. 
companies were signing up to be part of them, mm-hmm. learning how to present, yeah. you know, training for the big beauty contests and all that. And as you recall, when I had my stint in the federal government at the SBA, we had, I guess it was a $5 million budget each year to hand out checks to the top 100 incubators and accelerators in America. And just to do the math, back then, um, I found out there about there were about 2,000 incubators and accelerators across this great nation of ours. A thousand of them were just laughably crappy. I mean, it was, you know, two guys, a bunch of cigarettes, and sort of, you know, Windows 3.1. Don't, don't forget the dog. Yeah, the they dog. They all had a corgi. Yeah, the, the corgi. And nothing really was happening. But the thousand that, were, that had more traction, incubators and accelerators, um, were fascinating. Some of them had industry specificity. Some of them had gender specificity. Some of them had geographic specificity. Some of them had specific types of uh, startup specificity. It was really a very interesting pastiche I like to use that word, a in, word. In, a, in a question. There is a question. So, but it seems like the whole industry has sort of kind of gotten foggy and maybe not so important. What do you think went wrong or right in that whole industry back in the day? So this is a, a five-hour show we're doing This now? is a five-minute five answer minute from you. Petite, I, I still, I'm, I'm amazed. I should use the word aliquot. That's always been a favorite word of mine. I don't know why. I don't know I, what it means. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Okay. I just like, it just feels good I like good pastiche. To me. I like aliquot. But okay. anyway, I, I, dig- even. I digress. The the issue that you described is that uh, people confuse um, the attributes of a successful innovation region with uh, venture capital. By that, I mean that if you look at society, and again, if you look at the history of capitalism, capital gets created, wealth gets created when you have a concentration of education, people who are creative that make things that people with money want to buy. And then there's a supportive class. Literally, the Renaissance in Florence or Rome or Amsterdam with the art explosion, it was all the same thing. Rich people desiring something creative people could make. Well, that has been the case forever. And capitalism, in particular industrial capitalism, flourishes when you have concentrations of capital, talent, supporting expertise in the same place. Silicon Valley, New York City, Chicago, you you name it. Now, what happened during the time that you were in the SBA and before is people got confused about whether venture capital was a leading indicator of innovation or a lagging indicator, meaning is venture capital a condition precedent or a condition subsequent to having an innovation community that works? And the conclusion was reached was if you create companies that are attractive, the venture capital industry will pull them through and commercialize them. So the accelerator idea was take people that are inexperienced, who don't have a business plan, don't have a business model, give them a couple months of training, and then the venture capital community will come in, put money in, and basically turn them into a business. Mm -hmm. And the fundamental flaw was that that's not what venture capital does. I mean, you and I, again, we're, we're venture investors. We invest. Well, we invest pretty early, but we don't invest before the founder has an idea of what they want to do, and then it's largely time, not money, until they've reached many customers. VCs invest when there's a business to scale. They don't invest to create a business. So these accelerators that existed, particularly in parts of the country that don't have a lot of capital available, failed miserably yeah. because there was no pull-through. So, for example, Y Combinator in Silicon Valley is in many ways viewed as a better way for an entrepreneur to spend their time than going to Harvard. Yeah. Because if you get into the Y Combinator program, you will get 
attention and you will develop a business model which then a VC will fund right. in a place where there's lots of capital. Uh, we have a pretty interesting social uh, incubator accelerator here, Halcyon. Yeah. With that a lot of us circle, including us, they do interesting stuff. So accelerators can work, but as often the case when, sadly, is often the case when government tries to mandate economic activity, they don't really understand the free market aspects of it and over-invest or invest in the wrong way. And that's so I what used happened. To, I, the analogy I used to make, you know, Henry Higgins and, and my, my Fair Lady, right? That he, took, yeah. he took her and then shaped her into something yeah. that was ready for London society. And it, it's a lovely story. It just happens to not happen that, that, that often. Right. And, and I used to also say, you know, if you lived in Italy in the in the 1400s and you lived in parma and you were a great artist you wouldn't stay in parma you go to florence because that's where the money was that's, that's what right. the support was and then they went to rome exactly and then they, and so so this idea of geographic centricity of, of of capital and entrepreneurship is a natural because people our old friend steve case with rise of the rest mm. making a lot of progress enforcing capital and innovation and discovery of innovation in places other than the valley new york and here but still it's an up you're skiing uphill all the time so I, I wonder, I mean, I think there were too many incubators and too many accelerators in places like, forgive me, but, you know, Dubuque, right. and it's just not going to happen. Well, the most, successful the most successful accelerators, incubators are in a community where there are people that are interested. I mean, there's a great, I recall there being a great accelerator in Cincinnati. Why? Because it was consumer packaged goods. And there exactly. Were a lot of, so, look, what's really fascinating right now about the venture market is that the, the COVID uh pandemic has taught people how to do business on Zoom. Yeah. And when I look, for example, at, at our portfolio, we're local guys, we're cheerleaders. I think that every one of our companies right now that we're really working with, with the exception of one, has a CEO and most of a team that's outside a region. Yeah. They're national, but but they're all national companies. And I think that's that may also undermine the accelerator movement because accelerators and incubators are, here's a place we're all going to get together. Yeah. The place is the inner tubes now. The place yeah. is Zoom. I, I, I think that's probably right. But I will push back a little bit because you mentioned Cincinnati with obviously Procter & Gamble being a huge player there. Uh, I just spent some time in Bentonville, Arkansas. And, yeah, there's a company there. I think it's called Walmart, I'm so I'm told. You were mentioning them in the last segment, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Right. So, so the um, – look, it's not really a joke because it's true, but I was at a University of Arkansas football game many, many moons ago – and it was a homecoming. And the homecoming queen for the University of Arkansas was introduced at halftime along with her court. And the homecoming queen announcement of the, you know, the, the, the PA guy of this giant stadium, he goes, our homecoming queen is Susie Wilson. She's a logistics and transport, transportation logistics major. And I'd never heard of you know, logistics being a major in college. And I realized, wait a minute, to your point on Procter and Gamble. There's an employer three miles away that really cares about logistics and, right. and, and infrastructure. So I just wonder if there's some of the place-based stuff may still survive based upon corporate identity in oh, those towns. I'm sure it will. And the same way that you can put a golf course in the desert, you know, yeah. you got you got enough water. Um, right. There's nothing wrong with accelerators. There's nothing wrong with incubators at all. It's just what happens in the world that we live in is that uh, <laughs> bubbles get created. Yeah. You know, something's a great idea when you're the first person to do it. When you're the 15th or 20th or 100th, it gets harder and harder to succeed. And again, you know, touching on a theme you and I keep coming back to, unregulated capitalism creates bubbles. Yeah. Accelerators were a bubble. Well, you and I are part of one. I'm not sure they're an accelerator incubator. They're really more of a networking event here in Washington, D.C. called Mission Link. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think if you look up the URL, I think it's missionlinknext.org. 
think it's so. Yeah. It's on a dot com. Uh, it's on a dot com. A fascinating organization. Do you see that as sort of an accelerator? How would you view that organization? Well, so Mission Link is uh, an organization that's a not-for-profit that focuses on helping entrepreneurs who want to do more business with the federal government, do more business with the federal government. It's an invitation-only group, and it's uh, very effective. And we're lucky you and I are to be part of a you know advisory board. I think that um, it is basically an accelerator. Yeah. From the standpoint of helping people develop relationships to accelerate their businesses, it's a particular model because it's not actually tied to raising venture capital. It's actually tied to increasing awareness of how to do business with the federal government so you get contracts. Right. But at the end of the day, you're exactly right. It's an ecosystem as advisors like you and me and others. Uh, it's uh, access to really good lawyers. It's access to some bankers. It. It, it has all the aspects of an accelerator. But, but they don't in, call it themselves that. In, in some ways, it's funny because I was the other uh, last time I was there, I was thinking about Bentonville again with Walmart. Right. The U.S. government has a tent, and there are walls to that tent, and there are a few ways in. Mm-hmm. And part, I would argue, part of what Mission Link is about is finding the entrance to the tent using trust and relationships to get in. Yeah. Once in the tent, you can move around and, and 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 grow your business, which is also part of what Mission Link does. And I think it's, it, I know it's the same with Walmart. You know, they're a giant company. If you get to be a vendor in Walmart or relationships a supplier to Walmart. Once you're in the Walmart ecosystem, you can really, really expand. Very similar to the government. This is true for every industry. This is not new. Yeah. Think about back your time when you were at HBO. What's yeah. the best way to get HBO to buy a show? Have another show. Yeah. Right? Or or know the person who bought the shows at HBO and, and give that right. person I, illegal I drugs. People always have a bias to doing that. business. Well, yeah. people... Always have a bias to do business with folks that have done it before. Yes. The easiest way to raise very venture capital is to have had an exit. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, it's the old, what's the uh, the Rooney rule for NFL coaches, right? The easiest way to become an NFL uh, head coach is to be an NFL uh, head coach. And get fired. Right. Yeah, and get, get fired. <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, we're, we're, uh, we, we've covered about two of the seven topics I that I've listed I here, too much. but that's I'm okay. Sorry. We spent a lot of time in education. Um, I will suggest, just as we wrap up, and i got to get to our last question to you, I will suggest that... I'm seeing some interesting vitality in venture capital. If you had to wave a magic wand and roll the clock ahead five years, do you think venture capital will be uh, tighter valuations or more bubblicious valuations than than today? Five years from now? That'll be two cycles from now. Okay, three. Three years. I think you should ask me a year. A year. Tighter numbers, right? Oh, absolutely. A year from now, I think we're going to be back. We're either going to be back where we were in 2014 uh, or we're going to be back where we are where we are in 2001. And for those of you who don't know, 2014 was a reasonably healthy, not bubbly market. 2002 was just the absolute nuclear winner. And right. it, it's going to depend upon what happens with the debt ceiling. I'll start to sound here. And the bank. 2000, yeah, yeah, 2001. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. So we always ask our guests, as you know, if you whirl the world, wave a magic wand, what would you start happening or stop happening or both? I'd start taking climate change seriously and stop making pretend that it's a political issue because it's not. Well said. Jonathan Averman has been our guest today here on What's Working in Washington. You just heard his meta desire for our nation, uh, for our world, really, about climate change. Uh, It's been great challenging him and talking about all sorts of issues that he cares about as much as we do. So thanks for being with us. Always good to see you, Mark. The team behind What's Working in Washington is a great group. The executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Online content, Anna DeGraff. And that theme music you enjoy, performed by The Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.